Chapter Five, Part Two, of Life of Chopin by Franz Liszt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. Life of Chopin by Franz Liszt, translated by Martha Walker Cook. Chapter Five. Part two. Democracy presented to his view an agglomeration of elements too heterogeneous, too restless, wielding too much savage power to win his sympathies. The entrance of social and political questions into the arena of popular discussion was compared, more than twenty years ago, to a new and bold incursion of barbarians. Chopin was particularly and painfully struck by the terror which this comparison awakened. He despaired of obtaining the safety of Rome from these modern Attilas. He feared the destruction of art, its monuments, its refinements, its civilization. In a word, he dreaded the loss of the elegant, cultivated, if somewhat indolent, ease described by Horace. Would the graceful elegancies of life the high culture of the arts, indeed be safe in this rude and devastating hands of the new barbarians? He followed at a distance the progress of events, and an acuteness of perception, which he would scarcely have been supposed to possess, often enabled him to predict occurrences which are not anticipated even by the best informed. But though such observations escaped him, he never developed them, his concise remarks attracted no attention until time proved their truth. His good sense, full of acuteness, had early persuaded him of the perfect vacuity of the greater part of political orations, of theological discussions, of philosophic digressions. He began early to practice the favorite maxim of a man of great distinction, whom we have often heard repeat a remark dictated by the misanthropic wisdom of age, which was then startling to our inexperienced impetuosity, but which has since frequently struck us by its melancholy truth. "'You will be persuaded one day as I am,' said the Marquis de Noailles, to the young people whom he honoured with his attention, and who were becoming heated in some naive discussions of differing opinions." that it is scarcely possible to talk about anything to anybody. Qu'il n'y a guère moyen de causer de quoi que ce soit, avec qui que ce soit. Sincerely religious, and attached to Catholicity, Chopin never touched upon this subject, but held his faith without attracting attention to it. One might have been acquainted with him for a long time, without knowing exactly what his religious opinion were. Perhaps to console his inactive hand and reconcile it with his lute, he persuaded himself to think, Il m'en va d'asseux. We have frequently watched him during the progress of long, animated and stormy discussions, in which he would take no part. In the excitement of the debate, he was forgotten by the speakers, but we have often neglected to follow the chain of their reasoning, to fix our attention upon the features of Chopin, which were almost imperceptibly contracted when subjects touching upon the most important conditions of our existence were discussed 
with such eagerness and ardor, that it might have been thought our fates were to be instantly decided by the result of the debate. At such times he appeared to us like a passenger on board of a vessel, driven and tossed by tempests upon the stormful waves, thinking of his distant country, watching the horizon, the stars, the maneuvers of the sailors, counting their fatal mistakes, without possessing in himself sufficient force to seize a rope or the energy requisite to haul in a fluttering sail. On one single subject he relinquished his premeditated silence, his cherished neutrality. In the cause of art he broke through his reserve. He never abdicated upon this topic the explicit enunciation of his opinions. He applied himself with great perseverance to extend the limits of his influence upon this subject. It was a tacit confession that he considered himself legitimately possessed of the authority of a great artist. In questions which he dignified by his competence, he never left any doubt with regard to the nature of his opinions. During several years his appeals were full of impassioned ardor, but later, the triumph of his opinions having diminished the interest of his role, he sought no further occasion to place himself as leader, as the bearer of any banner. In the only occurrence in which he took part in the conflict of parties, he gave proof of opinions, absolute, tenacious, and inflexible, as those which rarely come to the light usually are. Shortly after his arrival in Paris, in 1832, a new school was formed both in literature and music, and youthful talent appeared, which shook off with éclat the yoke of ancient formulas. The scarcely lulled political effervescence of the first years of the Revolution of July passed into questions upon art and letters, which attracted the attention and interest of all minds. Romanticism was the order of the day, they fought with obstinacy for and against it. What truce could there be between those who would not admit the possibility of writing in any other than the already established manner, and those who thought that the artist should be allowed to choose such forms as he deemed best suited for the expression of his ideas, that the rule of form should be found in the agreement of the chosen form with the sentiments to be expressed? every different shade of feeling requiring a course, a different mode of expression. The former believed in the existence of a permanent form, whose perfection represented absolute beauty. But in admitting that the great masters had attained the highest limits in art, had reached supreme perfection, they left to the artists who succeeded them no other glory than the hope of approaching these models more or less closely by imitation thus frustrating all hope of ever equaling them because the perfecting of any process can never rile the merit of its invention the latter denied that the immaterial beautiful could have a fixed and absolute form the different forms which had appeared in the history of art seemed to them like tents spread in the interminable root of the ideal, mere momentary halting places which genius attains from epoch to epoch, and beyond which the inheritors of the past should strive to advance. 
the former wished to restrict the creations of times and natures the most dissimilar within the limits of the same symmetrical frame the latter claimed for all writers the liberty of creating their own mode accepting no other rules than those which result from the direct relation of sentiment and form exacting only that the form should be adequate to the expression of the sentiment however admirable the existing models might be they did not appear to them to have exhausted all the range of sentiments upon which art might seize or all the forms which it might advantageously use not contented with the mere excellence of form they sought it so far only as its perfection is indispensable for the complete revelation of the idea for they were not ignorant that the sentiment is maimed if the form remains imperfect any imperfection in it like an opaque veil intercepting the raying of the pure idea thus they elevated what had otherwise been the mere work of the trade into the sphere of poetic inspiration they enjoined upon genius and patience the task of inventing a form which would satisfy the exactions of the inspiration they reproached their adversaries with attempting to reduce inspiration to the bed of procrustes because they refused to admit that there are sentiments which cannot be expressed in forms which have been determined upon beforehand and of thus robbing art in advance even of their creation of all works which might attempt the introduction of newly awakened ideas newly clad in new forms forms and ideas both naturally arising from the naturally progressive development of the human spirit the improvement of the instruments and the consequent increase of the material resources of art those who saw the flames of genius devour the old worm-eaten crumbling skeletons attached themselves to the musical school of which the most gifted the most brilliant the most daring representative was berlioz chopin joined this school he persisted most strenuously in freeing himself from the servile formulas of conventional style while he earnestly repudiated the charlatanism which sought to replace the old abuses only by the introduction of new ones during the years which this campaign of romanticism lasted in which some of the trial blows were master strokes chopin remained invariable in his predilections as well as in his repulsions he did not admit the least compromise with those who in his opinion did not sufficiently represent progress and who in their refusal to relinquish the desire of displaying art for the profit of the trade in their pursuit of transitory effects of success won only from the astonishment of the audience gave no proof of sincere devotion to progress he broke the ties which he had contracted with respect when he felt restricted by them or bound too closely to the shore by cordage which he knew to be decayed. He obstinately refused, on the other hand, to form ties with a young artist whose success, which he deemed exaggerated, elevated a certain kind of merit too highly. He never gave the least praise to any thing which he did not believe to be a real conquest for art, or which did not evince a serious conception of the task 
of an artist. He did not wish to be lauded by any party, to be aided by the manoeuvres of any faction, or by the concessions made by any schools in the persons of their chiefs. In the midst of jealousies, encroachments, forfeitures, and invasions of the different branches of art, negotiations, treaties, and contracts have been introduced, like the means and appliances of diplomacy, with all the artifices inseparable from such a course. In refusing the support of any accessory aid for his productions, he proved that he confidently believed that their own beauty would ensure their appreciation, and that he did not struggle to facilitate their immediate reception. He supported our struggles, at that time so full of uncertainty, when we met more sages shaking their heads than glorious adversaries, with his calm and unalterable conviction. He aided us with opinions so fixed that neither weariness nor artifice could shake them, with a rare immutability of will, and that efficacious assistance which the creation of meritorious works always brings to a struggling cause, when it can claim them as his own. He mingled so many charms, so much moderation, so much knowledge with his daring innovations, that the prompt admiration he inspired fully justified the confidence he placed in his own genius. The solid studies which he had made, the reflective habits of his youth, the worship for classic models in which he had been educated, preserved him from losing his strength in blind gropings. In doubtful triumphs, as has happened to more than one partisan of the new ideas, his studious patience in the elaboration of his works sheltered him from the critics, who envenomed the dissensions by seizing upon those easy and insignificant victories due to omissions, and the negligence of inadvertence. Early trained to the exactions and restrictions of rules, having produced compositions filled with beauty when subjected to all their fetters, he never shook them off without an appropriate cause, and after due reflection. In virtue of his principles he always progressed, but without being led into exaggeration, or lured by compromise, he willingly relinquished theoretic formulas to pursue their results. Less occupied with the disputes of the schools and their terms, than in producing himself the best argument, a finished work, he was fortunate enough to avoid personal enmities and vexatious accommodations. Chopin had that reverential worship for art which characterized the first masters of the Middle Ages, but in expression and bearing he was more simple, modern, and less ecstatic. As for them, so art was for him a high and holy vocation. Like them, he was proud of his election for it, and honored it with devout piety. The feeling was revealed at the hour of his death through an occurrence, the significance of which is more fully explained by a knowledge of the manners prevalent in Poland. By a custom which still exists, although it is now falling into disuse, the Poles often chose the garments in which they wished to be buried, and which were frequently prepared a long time in advance. Footnote. General K. 
and here the last name is missing but starts with the letter k the author of julie and adolph a romance imitated from the new heloise which was much in vogue at the time of its publication and who was still living in volhynia at the date of our visit to poland though more than eighty years of age in conformity with the custom spoken of above had caused his coffin to be made and for more than thirty years it had always stood at the door of his chamber End of footnote. their dearest wishes were thus expressed for the last time their inmost feelings were thus at the hour of death betrayed monastic robes were frequently chosen by worldly men the costumes of official charges were selected or refused as the remembrances connected with them were glorious or painful chopin who although among the first of contemporary artists had given the fewest concerts wished notwithstanding to be borne to the grave in the clothes which he had worn on such occasions a natural and profound feeling springing from the inexhaustible sources of art without doubt dictated this dying request when having scrupulously fulfilled the last duties of a christian he left all of earth which he could not bear with him to the skies he had linked his love for art and his faith in it with immortality long before the approach of death and as he robed himself for his long sleep in the grave he gave as was customary with him by a mute symbol the last touching proof of the conviction he had preserved intact during the whole course of his life faithful to himself he died adoring art in its mystic greatness its highest revelations in retiring from the turmoil of society chopin concentrated his cares and affections upon the circle of his own family and his early acquaintances without any interruption he preserved close relations with them never ceasing to keep them up with the greatest care his sister louise was especially dear to him a resemblance in the character of their minds the bent of their feelings bound them closely to each other louise frequently came from warsaw to paris to see him she spent the last three months of his life with the brother she loved watching over him with undying affection chopin kept up a regular correspondence with the members of his own family but only with them it was one of his peculiarities to write letters to no others it might almost have been thought that he had made a vow to write to no strangers it was curious enough to see him resort to all kinds of expedients to escape the necessary of tracing the most insignificant note many times he traversed paris from one end to the other to decline an invitation to dinner or to give some trivial information rather than write a few lines which would have spared him all this trouble and loss of time his handwriting was quite unknown to the greatest number of his friends it is said he sometimes departed from this custom in favor of his beautiful countrywomen, some of whom possessed several of his notes written in Polish. The infraction of what seemed to be a law with him may be attributed to the pleasure he took in the use of this language. He always used it with the people of his own country, and loved to translate its most expressive phrases.
He was a good French scholar, as the slaves generally are. In consequence of his French origin, the language had been taught him with peculiar care. But he did not like it, he did not think it sufficiently sonorous, and he deemed its genius cold. This opinion is very prevalent among the Poles, who, although speaking it with great facility, often better than their native tongue, and frequently using it in their intercourse with each other, yet complain to those who do not speak Polish of the impossibility of rendering the thousand ethereal and shifting modes of thought in any other idiom. In their opinion, it is sometimes dignity, sometimes grace, sometimes passion, which is wanting in the French language. If they are asked the meaning of a word or a phrase which they may have cited in Polish, the reply invariably is, Oh, that cannot be translated. Then follow explanations, serving as comments to the exclamation, of all the subtleties, all the shades of meaning, all the delicacies contained in the not-to-be-translated words. We have cited some examples which, joined to others, induce us to believe that this language has the advantage of making images of abstract nouns, and that in the course of its development, through the poetic genius of the nation, it has been enabled to establish striking and just relations between ideas by etymologies, derivations, and synonyms. Colored reflections of light and shades are thus thrown upon all expressions, so that they necessarily call into vibration through the mind the correspondent tone of a third, which modulates the thought into a major or minor mode. The richness of the language always permits the choice of the mode, but this very richness may become a difficulty. It is not impossible that the general use of foreign tongues in Poland may be attributed to indolence of mind, or want of application, may be traced to a desire to escape the necessary labor of acquiring that mastery of diction indispensable in a language so full of sudden depths, of laconic energy, that it is very difficult, if not quite impossible, to support it in the commonplace. The vague agreements of badly defined ideas cannot be compressed in the nervous strength of its grammatical forms. The thought, if it be really low, cannot be elevated from its debasement or poverty. If it really soar above the commonplace, it requires a rare precision of terms not to appear uncouth or fantastic. In consequence of this, in proportion to the works published, the Polish literature should be able to show a greater number of chefs d'oeuvre than can be done in any other language. He who ventures to use this tongue must feel himself already master. Footnote. It cannot be reproached with a want of harmony or musical charm. The harshness of a language does not always and absolutely depend upon the number of consonants, but rather upon the manner of their association. We might even assert that in consequence of the absence of well-determined and strongly marked sounds, some languages have a dull and cold coloring. It is the frequent repetition of certain consonants 
which gives shadow, rhythm, and vigor to a tongue, the vowels imparting only a kind of light, clear hue, which requires to be brought out by deeper shades. It is the sharp, uncouth, or unharmonious clashing of heterogeneous consonants which strikes the ear painfully. It is true the Slavic languages make use of many consonants, but their connection is generally sonorous, sometimes pleasant to the ear, and scarcely ever entirely discordant, even when the combinations are more striking than agreeable. The quality of the sound is rich, full, and varied. They are not straightened and contracted as if produced in a narrow medium, but extending through a considerable register, range through a variety of intonations. The letter L, almost impossible for those to pronounce who have not acquired the pronunciation in their infancy, has nothing harsh in its sound. The ear receives from it an impression similar to that which is made upon the fingers by the touch of a thick woolen velvet, rough, but at the same time yielding. The union of jarring consonants being rare, and the assonances easily multiplied, the same comparison might be employed to the ensemble of the effect produced by these idioms upon foreigners. Many words occur in Polish which imitate the sound of the thing designated by them. The frequent repetition of CH, in parentheses, H aspirated, of SZ, in parentheses, CH in French, of RZ, of CZ, so frightful to a profane eye, have, however, nothing barbaric in their sounds, being pronounced nearly like G-E-A-I and T-C-H-E, and greatly facilitate imitations of the sense by the sound. The word D-Z-W-I-E-K, parentheses, read D-Z-W-I-I-N-Q-U-E, meaning sound, offers a characteristic example of this. It would be difficult to find a word which would reproduce more accurately the sensation which a diapason makes upon the ear. Among the consonants accumulated in groups, producing very different sounds, sometimes metallic, sometimes buzzing, hissing, or rumbling, many diphthongs and vowels are mingled, which sometimes become slightly nasal, the A and E being sounded as O-N and I-N in French, when they are accompanied by a cedilla. In juxtaposition with the E, T-S-E, which is pronounced with great softness, sometimes C, T-S-I-E, the accented S is almost warbled. The Z has three sounds, the Z, J-A-I-S, the Z, Z-E-D, and the Z, Z-I-E-D. The Y forms a vowel of a muffled tone, which, as the L, cannot be represented by any equivalent sound in French, and which, like it, gives a variety of ineffable shades to the language. These fine and light elements enable the Polish women to assume a lingering and singing accent, which they usually transport into other tongues. When the subjects are serious or melancholy, 
after such recitatives or improvised lamentations they have a sort of lipsing infantile manner of speaking which they vary by light silvery laughs little interjectional cries short musical pauses upon the higher notes from which they descend by one knows not what chromatic scale of demi and quarter tones to rest upon some low note and again pursue the varied brusque and original modulations which astonish the ear not accustomed to such lovely warblings to which they sometimes give that air of caressing irony of cunning mockery peculiar to the song of some birds they love to zinzillier and charming changes piquant intervals unexpected cadences naturally find place in this fondling prattle making the language far more sweet and caressing when spoken by the women than it is in the mouths of the men the men indeed pride themselves upon speaking it with elegance impressing upon it a masculine sonorousness which is peculiarly adapted to the energetic movements of manly eloquence formerly so much cultivated in poland poetry commands such a diversity of prosodies of rhymes of rhythms such an abundance of assonances from these rich and varied materials that it is almost possible to follow musically the feelings and scenes which it depicts not only in mere expressions in which the sound repeats the sense but also in long declamations the analogy between the polish and russian has been compared to that which obtains between the latin and italian the russian language is indeed more mellifluous more lingering more caressing fuller of sighs than the polish its cadencing is particularly fitted for song the finer poems, such as those of Zukowski and Puchkin, seem to contain a melody already designated in the meter of the verses. For example, it would appear quite possible to detach an arioso or a sweet cantiable from some of the stanzas of Le Chale Noir or the Talisman. The ancient Slavonic, which is the language of the Eastern Church, possesses great majesty more guttural than the idioms which have arisen from it it is severe and monotonous yet of great dignity like the byzantine paintings preserved in the worship to which it is consecrated it has throughout the characteristics of a sacred language which has only been used for the expression of one feeling and has never been modulated or fashioned by profane wants End of footnote chopin mingled a charming grace with all the intercourse which he held with his relatives not satisfied with limiting his whole correspondence to them alone he profited by his stay in paris to procure for them the thousand agreeable surprises given by the novelties the bagatelles the little gifts which charm through their beauty or attract as being the first scene of their kind he sought for all that he had reason to believe would please his friends in warsaw adding constant presence to his many letters it was his wish that his gifts should be preserved that through the memories linked with them he might be often remembered by those to whom they were sent he attached the greatest importance on his side to all the evidences of their affection for him to receive news or some mark of their remembrance was always a festival for him. He never shared this pleasure with any one, 
but it was plainly visible in his conduct. He took the greatest care of everything that came from his distant friends. The least of their gifts was precious to him. He never allowed others to make use of them. Indeed, he was visibly uneasy if they touched them. Material elegance was as natural to him as mental. This was evinced in the objects with which he surrounded himself, as well as in the aristocratic grace of his manners. He was passionately fond of flowers. Without aiming at the brilliant luxury with which, at that epoch, some of the celebrities in Paris decorated their apartments, he knew how to keep upon this point, as well as in his style of dress, the instinctive line of perfect propriety. Not wishing the course of his life, his thoughts, his time, to be associated or shackled in any way by the pursuits of others, he preferred the society of ladies, as less apt to force him into subsequent relations. He willingly spent whole evenings in playing blind man's buff with the young people, telling them little stories to make them break into the silvery laughs of youth, sweeter than the song of the nightingale. He was fond of a life in the country, or the life of a chateau. He was ingenious in varying its amusements, in multiplying its enjoyments. He also loved to compose there. Many of his best works written in such moments, perhaps embalm and hallow the memories of his happiest days. End of chapter 5, part 2